Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. So I really take for granted uh, my freedom to move. I take for granted my right to get in my car and go across town or go across the country. Uh, these are all things that I consider part of my right as an American. And they are things that were routinely denied to the African-Americans who came before me. In fact, efforts to limit and circumscribe Black movement to keep us in our place, our geographical places. They were really key and foundational uh, to efforts to circumscribe Black people more generally. In the PBS film, Driving Wild Black, Race, Space, and Mobility in America, co-directed by Dr. Gretchen Soren and Rick Burns, the film explores the story of Black movement, the way that Black people broke past the limitations that others attempted to put on them. And it talks about how we really created new communities, new communities and new places, because African-Americans, like everybody else, uh, insisted on making this American country live up to this American idea. The film of Driving Wild Black explores a subject that Dr. Soren also discusses in her book, Driving Wild Black. Here I am with Dr. Gretchen Soren. Welcome to the podcast, Gretchen Soren. Gretchen is a distinguished professor and the director of the Cooperstown Graduate Program of the State University of New York. She recently co-wrote and co-directed a new film, Driving While Black. Welcome to the program, Gretchen. And the way I would best describe your movie is that it's a story about how important mobility has been to Black people in America and also about how limiting that mobility has really been at the core of racism in America. Can you tell me if, I, if that's a fair description or expound if you would like? I think that's a great description. And I would only add that um, the role of the automobile comes into play in the 20th century. And it's so important to the way that um, African-Americans uh, felt about mobility and the way they were able to use mobility and use independence um, to better their lives and to avoid uh, Jim Crow. You talk a lot about Reconstruction, which was a moment in American history post-Civil War where African-Americans had this new freedom and with it came the freedom to leave the plantation and go strike out and make your way elsewhere. But it wasn't really, it wasn't straightforward because for lots of black folks, they really didn't know where else to go. I mean, slavery was the system that they knew, that we knew. Right, and, and so many people had been um, restricted to their plantations for generations. They had never left maybe a one mile stretch of land they had never been anywhere. They couldn't read. They couldn't write. They didn't know anything other than how to pick cotton. And th it was impossible for them to think about leaving. And so even with my own family, I looked at the, you know, the folks in South Carolina where my father's family was from, and they never left that area. They stayed even after slavery ended. And, and you know, we, we might ask why. Why didn't they go? But where would they go? They, had, they knew nothing, they couldn't read, they couldn't write, they had no resources, and they had no money. 
How important was the automobile uh, to, for instance, the Great Migration, which you also talk about in the movie? Um, so many African Americans, we are descended from folks in the South. You mentioned your family's from South Carolina. My family, my mother's uh, family is originally from Mississippi. Uh, like so many other African Americans, uh, my ancestors, my grandfather moved from Mississippi uh, to Kansas, you know, into the Midwest. And you talk about that. And you talk about how a lot of that movement was about fleeing racial terrorism. How important was it for Black folks to be able to pick up, get in their cars, and get out of town during this moment in history? Well, you know, what I discovered in my research was that every African-American who could buy a car bought a car. And we bought cars in large numbers. And if we couldn't buy a new car, if you couldn't afford to buy a new car, you bought a used car um, or you bought a used truck. And I think that that demonstrates how important the automobile was. If you think about what it was like to ride on the Jim Crow bus or ride in the Jim Crow car of a train or ride on a Jim Crow trolley car, public transportation was segregated. And on segregated transportation, you that was filthy, uh, rarely cleaned. You had to sit in the back of the bus or the filthy train car right behind the um, engine of the uh, of the train. The the bus drivers often carried guns, and they would enforce segregation with their guns. There there are so many instances in the paper of people being shot by bus drivers. Um, there are instances of bus drivers requiring black people to get on in the front and telling them, okay, now you go and you, you go uh, get on the back door. And when they'd go to the back door, the bus would pull away. The cruelty, the humiliation, um, the disgust with which African-Americans were treated. And um, one of the things that was truly upsetting was that African-American children faced this. And so you can imagine how that, that humiliation is just passed down generation to generation the inferiority that Black children um, felt and their parents didn't want them to feel. So in comes the automobile in the 30s, 40s, 50s. And all of a sudden, you can travel in your own private space. You don't have to face that humiliation. You don't have to put your children through that. So the automobile is incredibly important in giving dignity to African-Americans, in destroying that humiliation that we felt in, in, a, in getting onto the, the public conveyances, it was incredibly important. But I think also you couldn't have had the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s without the automobile. The automobile made the civil rights movement happen. And the car, as you describe it, really was this sanctuary from these indignities that you talk about. You know, it's so interesting, Gretchen, because right now we have so much conflict in this country over the right to be left alone. And it seems that when, you know, kind of when African-Americans come into play, when we're at issue, it's kind of like the inverse, you know, whereas normally the presumption is, uh, it's my right to be left alone. Why are you in my business? Where black people are involved, it becomes an issue of our having to prove that we are, that we belong wherever it is we happen to be. If it's in the White House, show me your birth certificate. If you're bird watching in the park or jogging down the street, tell me what you're doing and why you're in my neighborhood. Uh, your movie explores really powerfully some of the historical antecedents for that. You know, you started to talk just now about uh, 
bus drivers shooting black people who didn't sit in the right place. But you also touch upon, and I'm not going to ask people, yeah, I don't want you to give the movie away because I do want people to see it. But you really do touch on other uh, times when black people were just policed and regulated for trying to move around, for trying to go from one place to another. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Well, you know, one of the one of the revelations for me as I started doing the research for my book, which the film is based on my book, also called Driving While Black. And um, in doing that research, I discovered that the antecedents of modern police departments were slave catchers. The very first police departments in this country were the good citizens of various communities who legally got together every night and policed the community. They walked through the community looking for escaped slaves. And they were not there just to check on passes because if you were an enslaved person, you had to have a pass to go from one place to another. Um, you had to either, you had to prove that you were supposed to be there. Um, but not only were they there to check passes, they were there to intimidate. They were there to make sure there were no slave ins insurrections. They were there to make sure that, that enslaved people didn't get together. Um, didn't gather together and possibly plot something against the white community so that they could get out of slavery. So this is these are the antecedents that we're looking at. And these were legal groups. But if you think about what happens during the um, civil rights movement, these legal groups become, um, become police departments that are enforcing segregation in the South. Um, they're enforcing uh, the, this humiliation that we're talking about. And then we also start to get these extra legal groups, the Klan, who are going around and they're enforcing intimidation on black communities. The goal there was both to intimidate and require deference, but also to keep black people in the South. They did not want black people to leave the South because that was the labor force. And so they would patrol um, train stations and they would patrol bus stations to make sure that the labor force was not leaving to go north. A lot of people, when they were able, relatives would come north in their cars and under cover of darkness, they would take other people north in those cars so that they could sneak out of the South. And we're talking about, this is post-Reconstruction and the 20th century. We're talking mid-20th century. Yes. Of folks having to sneak out of their homes in the South to go somewhere else. Sneaking around because of racism and, and the fear of violence. Yes. Because when slavery is ended, slavery is reinstituted as, as um, in, in a way that is basically, that keeps people on the land right? It's sharecropping. It's called sharecropping, but it's really another form of legalized slavery. Another thing that your film explores really well is just sort of the history and culture of travel and how, you know, you look at, because I love old movies, I love watching these vintage shows, and you always see the family packing up and, and the station wagon, and they go drive to the Grand Canyon, you know, or, or you know, the Bradys, the Bradys went everywhere. They could take a road trip any, anywhere. You talk about how uh, the stress and drama of Black folks going on a road trip and 
the downside of that is something uh, that we're all too familiar with. Uh, the, the terrorism, the torture, the indignity, uh, even being in your car and being harassed, uh, driving into, I think it's in Greenville, where the city sign says, uh, the blackest land, the whitest people. So, you know, even within the protection of the car, you had these indignities, but you also had the drama of figuring out where you were going to get gas, where you were going to eat, where you were going to go to the bathroom. And you talk about how there was so much black entrepreneurialism that stepped in and filled the gap. Tell us a little bit about that, because that was something in your film that I found uh, really hopeful and optimistic. You know, the way that black folks found and created opportunity out of some of these indignities. Absolutely. And, and black folks wanted to travel just as white folks wanted to travel. They wanted to see the Grand Canyon. They wanted to go to monuments. They wanted to go to museums. They wanted to educate their children about the country. And they were, we were proud of this country. We were part of this country. We built this country. And so as African-Americans travel, they need places to stay. They need places to eat. They need places to go to the bathroom and get gasoline. And that's, um, that's where this incredible network of restaurants, roadhouses, um, hotels, motels, grows up around this travel industry for African-Americans. And it really begins after the depression because um, the federal government is encouraging black people to travel. And black people can't stay at the Hilton or the Holiday Inn or Howard Johnson's. They can only stay um, at black owned and black operated and all black businesses. And so you have this incredible network across the country primarily from the Mississippi East, and then you have a lot of them on the West Coast, not so many in the Midwest, uh, west of Chicago, but you do have some. And this network is getting national marketing through all of the travel guides that African-American publishers put together to notify people. And one of them, of course, is the Green Book. That's the one that everyone knows about. But there are dozens of these guides. There's Travel Guide, Grayson's Guide, Small's Guide. There are literally dozens of these guidebooks that no longer exist that tell you where you can find a welcoming face and a smile when you stop along the roadside, um, where you can stop to eat, where you can stop to go to the bathroom, uh, where you can get gasoline. Speaking of gasoline, another interesting little tidbit that I picked up uh, from your film, and I should uh, remember folks, Driving While Black, based on Gretchen Soren's book of the same name, Driving While Black. Uh, in the film, you talk about these other entrepreneurial uh, opportunities that arose for Black people, gas stations. I had no idea that there were, you know, Black folks owning SO gas stations. I think you said that that was one of the few uh, companies that had Black franchisees. Black franchisees would put the Green Book out so you could get, a Black family could get gas from a, a Black gas station owner, buy their Green Book, and then figure out where they could eat and sleep on the road. You know, the, we hear a lot about the dark side of Jim Crow, which and I'm saying that wrongly. I think Jim Crow only has a dark side. Um, and frankly, a lot of people, I, I don't know that we have yet uh, really grappled with the racism um, of this century and the last. But 
one of the things that was uh, hopeful to me was how, you know, even in the midst of all of that darkness, even in the midst of all that oppression, you had Black people finding ways to create opportunity. Yeah. They created opportunity. They didn't just say, we can't do this. They figured out, you won't let us do A, we're going to figure out how to do B. Um, and, and it really is a remarkable story about creativity and, and, and ingenuity, I think. And I think you see that really white folks were unaware that there was really a parallel world out there. And that parallel world was the black world. And white people were totally unaware um, of all of these businesses that African-Americans had started to support their fellow African-Americans when they traveled. Um, and also within communities. Um, and there are a couple of interesting um, stories, I think. First of all, many of these people that owned these businesses supported the civil rights movement financially. They had the wherewithal to put some money. Somebody said to me the other day, well, well, where did the money come from for the civil rights movement? Well, yes, it came from wealthy white liberals, but it also came from black entrepreneurs that owned businesses and they supported the civil rights movement as well. And that money for the civil rights movement also came from women. A lot of women, fried chicken, made coconut pies, um, coconut cakes and, and, and apple pies and sweet potato pies, and they sold that food. And they took that money and they used that money, they donated that money, and they made surprising amounts of money, donated that to the movement. Very often they were selling that food to white people who had no idea that that money was going right into the civil rights movement. They were people that just loved that food and wanted to buy that food. And they would never have purchased it if they knew where the money was going. But the money went right into the movement. They had no idea that that uh, pineapple upside down cake was buying somebody's freedom. That was paying for somebody's right. bail. <laughs> but, and you know, the, the interesting thing about mobility is that if you look at the legal basis for the Civil Rights Act, for instance, it's predicated on the Commerce Clause. It's predicated on the fact that these uh, barriers to Black people moving from state to state were really a burden on interstate commerce. I mean, a lot of people think that we have a Civil Rights Act because uh, a bunch of people in the legislature said, you know, it is wrong to treat uh, uh, black and brown people differently. Now, we have a Civil Rights Act because they said it's bad for business right. in order to have these barriers to interstate commerce. Why did you write your book and why did you feel the need to tell this story in the way that you did? Because you tell so much of the story of the Black experience in America in this film, which is about cars and mobility, but you can't really get to the significance of the car until you tell the story about you know, how we were living before the car. What was your motivation in, in telling this story right now? Well, you know, I started, I started this story with the Green Book. I started because someone had handed me the cover of a green book and said, have you ever heard of this? And I said, I've never heard of it. And I, I was curious. As, as a student of African-American history, I had never heard of this green book. And I thought, how is that possible? So I started looking at the green book. And you know, usually when you're working on a PhD, as you go up in education, you get more and more narrow. But as I, and I started this as my dissertation. So I started this more than 20 years ago. Wow. And as I went, 
into the story, it got wider and wider and wider. And it, you know, it started out as just a story about the Green Book. But I realized, you know, the Green Book is important, but there's a much bigger story here. And that story is, well, first I got to the automobile. That story is about the automobile and how the automobile changed African-American life. And then I even got to a bigger story, which was, this, this is a story that's even bigger than the automobile. It's a story about mobility. And what does mobility mean in a free society? And I started looking at the legal aspects of mobility. Mobility was so important in the 18th century, doesn't even make it into the Constitution. It was assumed to be a right. It makes it into the Articles of Confederation, but never even into the Constitution. We just assumed that in a free society, everyone has the freedom of mobility. But of course, enslaved people are brought here, and for them, mobility is denied. So to understand why mobility becomes so important for Black people, you have to look at how it was first denied. So when all of a sudden we can go where we want to go, when we want to go, that's enormous. That's an enormous um, change in, in freedom and so important um, for African-Americans that I thought, this is, this is really the story that I need to tell. And it just became fortuitous, sadly, because of the cell phone. We're starting to be able to see the prejudice that Black people knew was there all the time. Now white people can see it because of cell phones. We see the murder of George Floyd. We see the murder of Philando Castile. We see the, the murder of all of these Black men. And when you consider these deaths in the context of the history that you tell in your movie, so um, they become all the more tragic and all the more potent. Like, I I couldn't stop thinking about any one of a number of the people who you mentioned and who were also mentioned in the movie. But, um, you know, you just think about young Trayvon Martin walking down the street. And Trayvon Martin, uh, all these other folks who were simply exercising the freedom that so many people have and take for granted to go from point A to point B without having someone in their business. Uh, That freedom from having people in your business is a freedom that that Black people too often don't enjoy. Uh, Your film comes full circle and you talk a lot about, uh, you talk about the conversation that we're now having about Black people and policing and, and law enforcement. Um, you also said that you feel that this is a moment now that white people are beginning to care. Is that because of the cell phone or do you think that there's some other global consciousness happening? I think it's because of the confluence of COVID-19 and the murder of George Floyd. I think that people started paying attention because they were home and paying attention. Um, And there was nothing else to do this summer. Um, And people were kind of laser focused on what was going on in the news. And I think that that was kind of key to um, so COVID-19 I think was, was really key to getting people focused in on what was happening. Um, and then the murder of George, George Floyd happens and all of a sudden we start to have demonstrations. It was kind of the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. 
Um, and people were able to go out into the streets, I mean, because they weren't working. I, I, I think really those things, it happened at, at just the, you know, sadly, it happened at that moment. Uh, and then Ahmed Aubrey was murdered for jogging, jogging. in the neighborhood. <laughs> and Brianna Taylor was murdered asleep in her bed or just in her bed. Um, and I, I think white people started to notice that, wow, we're, we're murdering black people in a horrible, horrible way um, for no reason. You touch upon uh, being a mother and a grandmother in the movie. How afraid are you or were you when your kids were younger? Um, how nervous were you just sending your kids out on the street? I think when my son was in high school, I was terrified. Um, he, because he was a, you know, the sweet kid who would be driving around. He had a car, um, even though it wasn't, it wasn't a sports car. It was a little Toyota. He had his grandmother's car, but he would be driving around with a, you know, a car full of white girls because we live in a rural area and there aren't very many African-Americans. So here he's driving around with his friends. Um, and I was terrified, you know, but I don't, I don't want to scare him. Um, and make him afraid to um, to have friends. At the same time, it was a, a scary time for us. And I would say, if you are stopped, here's what you must do. A car full of teenagers is not something that, um, you know, is something that is really frightening often to police officers. They're afraid of the people in the cars. And because they're afraid, you have to be afraid that they might be so nervous that they'll shoot you if you make a wrong move. I don't have children, and I'm so fascinated by what you just said because it really speaks to the need to strike a balance when you are trying to protect a young person from uh, the fear or the violence of you know somebody who legally has a gun, but you also don't want them to go through the world scared and nervous and with a sense of not belonging. You know, something else, Gretchen, that really struck me when I was watching your movie, and I, I said to my husband, I was like, I really, I, meaning me very personally, I am like so many of us in this generation, we are the living embodiment of our ancestors' dreams. We can walk around, do things, say things, uh, engage with folks in a way that our parents, grandparents, and greats could not. Um, that has to be balanced with the very real reality that so many people have when they are assaulted and molested for simply jogging down the street and, and minding their business. How do you as a parent and grandparent strike that balance uh, when you're talking to young people? You know, it's, it's interesting. I had this conversation with my daughter recently who has um, a three-year-old and a five-year-old, little girls. And there was a, a film out, a very short film, I guess it appeared on um, Instagram, um, of parents talking to their children about, um, about this very subject. And one of the, uh, it, it, it'll, it would make you cry because you see this little girl and she puts her hands up. She's practicing. Her father is teaching her what to do. And she puts her hands up and she says, my name is Ariel. I'm eight years old and I do not have a weapon. And she's just this cute little eight-year-old girl. And she's trained by her father to put her hands in the air and to say this if there's a police officer, because her father has been beaten up by the police. 
And he then starts talking to the camera and he says, well, you know, the police stopped me and they split my lip and they did this and they did. And then she starts to cry and cry and cry. And he says, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. I think it, I think it really is a balance, but I think you have to be honest with your children and say to them that racism still exists in this country and therefore you must behave in a particular way. I've had, um, you know, I was on a, a talk show in Chicago and one of the, it was a call-in show. And one of the callers said to me, we have to teach our children to confront the police. They, they, shouldn't, um, they shouldn't acquiesce, they should confront. And my feeling is the, the time for confrontation is after you have survived a traffic stop. The time for, con- you come to me, you know, I'll get you a lawyer. I will, we'll take the lawyer to the police station. We will confront after, but you, you have to survive. If you get stopped on the side of the road, it's just you and that police officer. You have to survive that encounter. The, con- the confrontation can come if, if, if the police officer does something wrong. Most police officers are, are good, decent people. The problem is if you encounter that one, that's a racist or that's afraid of you because you're black. You're echoing something that another one of your participants in the film said, which was your job is to survive. Your job is to survive the encounter, get to a phone and we'll handle the lawyer. We'll handle all you just survive so you can get to a phone and call us. Dr. Gretchen Soren, I have to thank you. Uh, Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for making this really important, uh, powerful movie, Driving While Black. Uh, It's available on PBS. It's a powerful film. I really encourage everybody to see it. And thank you, Dr. Soren, for being here. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fragoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. 